Church family, it is good to be with you today. Uh, one of the other things that I want to do before I get started is what we do every week. We spend a little time praying to God and thanking Him for how big His kingdom is. Uh, usually we, we pick out another church here in this area and pray for them, pray that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is shared through them and that they're blessed during that time. Uh, today, instead of praying for another place, what I wanted to do is pray for what happens here through people of all of these different places. I don't know if you know, but uh, Bible Study Fellowship, BSF, meets here uh, a couple of different times during the week. And we're excited about that. We are thankful for that, that people come here, and we don't even know from what all churches that they come from here in this area, but they gather here on Mondays, men and women. There's over 100 probably that come here on Mondays. And then on Thursdays, uh, there's a women's group that there's about 60 uh, we're grateful that God has given us this building. We're grateful that we get to use it for his glory. We're thankful that people come in here and dig into the word of God to draw closer to him. And so we want to pray uh, that God moves powerfully through that. And uh, we want to be thankful for all of the people that uh, enter these doors and lift up the name of Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the vastness of your kingdom. We know that the gates of Hell cannot prevail against it, but that it is eternal. It will last forever. And Lord, we are mindful of what great cost there was to set up your church here in this world. We know that it came at the cost of your son. And so, Lord, we, uh, we ask that you bless us uh, as we claim Christ as our Savior, that you remind us who we are. And then we, Lord, uh, we thank you for the unity that we have with other believers here in this town. We thank you for the people that come in here through Bible Study Fellowship. Uh, the women's group, the men's group, the kids that come in here. Lord, the folks that come in here every week to dig into your word, uh, to see what you have to say um, in a desire to follow you and to become more your disciples. And so, Lord, we ask that you would move powerfully through them, no matter what congregation they come from. We ask that you would bless their home church, uh, that you would bless them, and that through uh, these doors, people come through and become more devoted disciples of yours, no matter if they belong here or if they belong to other bodies here in this place. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we've been going through the Gospel of John. And uh, I hope you have your, if you have your, uh, your Bible, we've got, we've got this, this book of John with a journal in it. And if you don't have one of those, let us know. I think we've still got a few more. And if you're online and you would like one of these, let us know. And we'll try to get one to you. Um, but we're going to be in this again. I hope that you've been able to... Uh, take a few notes. I have had a few people go, you've got to move into the next chapter because my page is full of notes and I got to turn the page. I'm sorry about that, but we're going to jump now because the next thing really in chapter two that starts off with is the miracle that happens in Cana at the wedding and that's water to wine. Now we're not going to do that one this week. And the reason is because I preached on that before when I first got here. As a matter of fact, it was my first sermon here was on water to wine. And so I thought that if you wanted to, you could go back and you could look at that. There's a link on the bulletin there for you to do that. Or if you want to go on our web page, you can scroll down to sermons. And then there's one that's a highlighted sermon and you can go and see that. Uh, but we want to give you that opportunity if you would like to see that. I will give you a disclaimer. It was my first sermon here and I was kind of nervous. And you'll notice that when you go back, if you look at it, uh, I was kind of, I didn't know you, you didn't know me. Uh, it was a first date. And so it, I, I was kind of nervous, just so you know. Uh, we didn't have the uh, connections that we do with you now. And uh, it is such a blessing now to look out into this audience and see people that I know and people that I've prayed with and people that have prayed for me and people that I have a connection with. And um, 
I, we prayed that day that that would happen. And I'm thankful that God has made that happen. So you can go back and look at that. But instead, what we have today is we have the story of the cleansing of the temple uh, that Jesus did. And I want you to know, this is, a, this is one that people tend, uh, some people in particular, tend to gravitate towards. They like this story. The idea that Jesus gets mad. Uh, we can connect with that. Some of us, like I said, in particular, kind of like that. You go, I kind of like mad Jesus. You know, I can connect with that. I understand that. You know, that, that lion of Judah sort of thing. We get enough of Jesus being the lamb. This is Jesus being the lion. And, and I like that. I like that he's going after him. He should get him. Go get him, Jesus. And he's like, that's the sort of church I want to belong to is Jesus getting kind of fiery. And we like that. And I think in some ways that we may be missing out on a little bit of what's going on here because this isn't just anger. This is not like the way sometimes I feel on the interstate when somebody's driving in the left-hand lane and won't pass or move over. This is different than that. Although we should pray for those people because they need to move over. Or this isn't like when you go into a restaurant and you have somebody who's on their cell phone having a conversation that seems as loud as me on this microphone right now. It's not just that, although we should pray for those people as well. But this isn't, this isn't pure anger. What we want to do is dig into this and see what's going on with here. And in particular, why John puts it here, because this is important. You need to know that John is trying to do something here. And we want to be able to see what it is. And it's much deeper than just a simple getting angry. Now, there's another question that comes up with this. One is, is this the same cleansing of the temple that is talked about in the other Gospels? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention Jesus going into the temple and running some people out, getting upset. They all put it at the end of their Gospels. It is in the last week as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and it's what eventually leads to his death. But John has it here at the beginning as one of the first things that Jesus does. And so there's a lot of debate and a lot of study and a lot of different scholars who talk about, did Jesus do this twice? Or is this one time and John just decided to put it right here at the beginning? And you need to know a couple of things about that. Number one is there's no way to know for sure. There's no way to know for sure. It's possible that John took that and he put it at the beginning because you need to know John's interest in what we're doing here is not to make sure he gets everything chronologically correct. That's not the purpose of this gospel. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that go, you know what? Jesus may have started his ministry with this and he may have finished his ministry with this. No matter what, John put this here for a reason for us to understand. And it's not just about an event. Because what John's writing is things of why Jesus did, what it meant. One of our themes that we keep talking about here is spirit and truth. John writes about things that have to do with the spirit. It's deeper than just what Jesus did. It's what it meant. It's what he's trying to get us to understand. There's some eternal things that are coming here that are more than what Jesus just did. So we want, we want to be able to look with those eyes at, the, at what John has put in here. As a matter of fact, if you would, let's do something real quick. If you've got your, if you've got your little journal here, let's turn over to uh, John 20. That's going to be on page 120. If you want to, just turn over to page 120. I'm going to give you something to underline. And I want us to remember this. This is John 20, verses 30 and 31. If you want to underline something, this is a good thing to underline. Okay? 30 and 31 in John 20. It's on page 120 there. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you want to underline something, underline that. 
As a matter of fact, that ought to be something we look at every week and go, why is this here? Why are we studying this? This is why John wrote this the way he did. It's so that you may come to believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we may have life in his name. That's what we want. That's the purpose of John. So whether or not there was one cleansing or two cleansing is not nearly as important as why this is here and what Jesus was trying to explain to us. So that's where we're going to be today. John builds his case in uh, the first chapter. That's where we've been. As a matter of fact, if you think about chapter 1, John's setting it up before Jesus does any action. He says, Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the light, right? Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the ladder. How about that for alliteration? You can put all that down, all starting with L's, right? We've been through all of that. John the Baptist claimed him as going, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then last week, one of the things that we did was he talked about that Jesus, you will see the angels ascending and descending, which lent, it lent us back to the story of Jacob, where there was a ladder that he saw going from heaven. And God stood on it, and the angels went up and down. And Jesus is going, I'm that. That's who I am now. I am the thing that, that, that uh, connects heaven and earth. I am the way to the Father and from the Father to the earth. I'm the thing that connects the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And so he makes himself even the latter. And he's talking about more than anything, he also talked about how he's come to dwell with us. And we talked about tabernacle. And he talked about coming to dwell with us and move with us. And then he talked about being this ladder that's this connection. And what the theme starts to be here is the understanding of this is God being near. This is God coming to us, dwelling among us, making sure there's no separation between us and our heavenly father. That is a lot of what verse, uh, chapter 1 ends up with. There's nothing to keep you from God now. I've come, and I've come to dwell, and I bring the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord, and I've come to be right among you to where there's no separation. That's why it's not nearly as important to know about the chronological order, but as we look into this today, I think you're going to see this theme continue on, and John's got some really good stuff for us, so I'm excited to share this with you. One is, I want to mention a little background about Passover. If you're not familiar, uh, you need to know that Passover was this celebration of the most pivotal moment in the history of the Jews. If you were a Jewish person and a follower of the one true God, Passover was this memorial party, celebration, worship time of the most pivotal moment in their history. You see, there was a time that they were enslaved in Egypt, and they cried out to God. And at that time, the Lord sent a messenger. He sent Moses. And Moses came to Pharaoh to try and release them, to liberate them from their captivity and from their enslavement. And the thing that he did was he came and spoke the words of God to him. And he said, Pharaoh, the Lord says, let my people go. Now, one of the things I want to make sure that you understand is we, we tend to know those words. You even know maybe the song that has to do with that. But one of the things you need to remember that we don't often remember is the reason why. When Moses came and said, Pharaoh, the Lord says, let my people go so that they can go out into the desert and they can worship me, so that they can have a feast, so that together we can commune. This was this call that Moses had is to go, I want them to be able to come out and I want them to be able to worship me, turn them loose so that they can come and worship me. And when Pharaoh said no, then what happened was the Lord brought on these plagues, ending with the last one, which had the destruction of the firstborn of all of those in Egypt. But if you put the blood of a lamb over your door, 
as the Israelites did, the Hebrews did, then what happened was that that destruction passed over you, and so they were saved. They were saved through the blood of the Lamb in this, and then eventually what happened was the Lord led them out of slavery and bondage to a place where they could meet with the Lord. And when they went out there and they began to worship, that was their opportunity to actually meet with the Lord. He showed up. He showed up in cloud, and he showed up in fire. And then he came to dwell with them in this tabernacle where he traveled with them. And so that's the celebration. They would come every year, and they would come and celebrate this encounter that they had, this liberation that they had, and the way that they got to meet with the Lord. Now, in Jesus' time, they would still celebrate this time. So once a year, you would come and you would celebrate Passover. Now, here's the deal. is If you could come to Jerusalem, you tried to. That was one of the things that you wanted to do, but not everybody could all the time. Maybe ill, you may be too far away, you maybe couldn't afford it, it was a difficult thing. But one of the things you wanted to do sometime in your life if you were a Jewish person was be able to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you were home in another town and you did this, the Passover celebration at your home where you told the story and you shared in the bread and you shared in the cup, what you would do is you would finish with next year in Jerusalem. That was one of the things you always wanted to do. This idea that at some point, I want to be able to come back and I want to have this time in Jerusalem. I want to be able to go to this place and draw near to God and worship because you understand in Jerusalem was the temple that was the presence and the seat of God. That's how they saw that. And so there would be this opportunity that maybe next year we get to go to Jerusalem. We get to go to that place where the Lord is. And we get to remember we were once slaves. We were once outcasts. And we wanted to worship our God, and people in power would not let us do it. And then the Lord came, and he redeemed us, and he saved us. And he allowed us to be able to come out of that. God came for us. And so while there was this invitation to go out into the, des the desert and encounter God and worship God, back when, it was, when they were in Egypt, there's still this invitation every year. Be able to come. This invitation, come and worship. Make the sacrifice. Remember the Lamb. Remember the blood. Remember how we were saved. And we get this opportunity. Now, Josephus was a historian that lived during that time. And he would say that you need to know that the city would just be cram-packed full of people. That it's possible there could be anywhere from a quarter of a million to a million people in that city during Passover. People would just come flooding in. As a matter of fact, there's stories that he would say where if you went to some of the outlying cities around there where Jews tended to live, they'd be empty. Because everybody would come into Jerusalem during that time. And there would be all these sacrifices that were made. People coming to make sacrifice, to encounter God, to be able to worship, to be able to remember we're redeemed people, people who've been saved. And so we get this opportunity to worship there. So you look at that and you go, okay, I'm still not buying why Jesus is mad. Why are we mad at all of this? And then you start realizing, well, Jesus pointed his anger at the money changers and the sellers of those sacrificial animals. If you remember from the scripture that was read, as Jesus came and says that he kind of made something that looked like a whip from some cords, and he, he ran out the people that were selling the money, uh, selling the animals, and, and the money changers, and he turned over the tables, and he was really upset. So what's the problem there? Well, you need to know that that wasn't a bad thing that that was happening. If you traveled into Jerusalem for the Passover, one of the things that you wanted to do was have a sacrifice when you got there. So there was a couple of ways to do that. One is you could bring your own animal. But if you had to travel really far, that could be hard on the animal. And maybe you, didn't afford, you couldn't afford one. 
So the other option was that you could show up there and you could buy an animal that they had raised, that they had there, there in the courts where you could buy this. When you did, you needed to know you couldn't use the money of the Roman Empire that most people use. So if you come from a foreign town and you use Roman money, they wouldn't let you use that money to make a purchase there in the temple or to make your tithe or that. You had to change that out. You had to change it to temple money. So that's why there was money changers, and that's why there were people that were selling animals there. One is if you didn't have one. Two is if you came with an animal, it needed to be good enough for the sacrifice. It needed to be without blemish. And so one of the things that would happen is you would bring your animal and you would bring it to one of the, the people that were part of the, the priestly caste there, and they'd look at it, and they'd tell you whether or not it was good enough. Another thing is if it wasn't good enough, they'd send you to go buy another one over here. So that's why there, there are people selling animals, and that's why there's money changers in the temple. So we look at that and we go, okay, so Jesus was mad because there's business and money being going on in the temple. Is that what it is? It's because money? Is, it, is that what the problem is? And we've got to look deeper than that. There's something more than that that's going on. One of the things you need to recognize, too, is in the temple area where they were doing this, it was called the Court of the Gentiles. So you had the temple, and inside of that was the holy place and the holy of holies. There was these, these, this center of where God was. And outside of that were these places that you could come. And one of the furthest places around that was a big area around the temple building was something called the court of Gentiles. And that's where they were doing this selling. That's where they were changing the money, is in the court of Gentiles. Because you need to know, Gentiles at that time around the temple were only allowed so close. They weren't allowed closer than just that area. As a matter of fact, women could come a little closer than that. Men could come a little, Jewish men, Jewish women, Jewish men could come a little closer than that. The priests could come closer than that. High priests could go even closer than that. So there was a sense in one way is that if you were a Gentile, you were in some ways an outcast. You could come and you could be part of the worship that's going on, but you needed to stay where you were. You were an outsider in some place. In some ways, you didn't live a kosher life. You didn't live a life of cleanliness following the rules that were being given to the Jews. And because of that, this was as close as you could come. But you look at that and you go, well, that's the way God set it up. He said to have a court of Gentiles. He said that's the way that this would work. So what's the problem? You look at all of this and you go, I'm still not getting why he's mad. Well, let me tell you this part. Here's where it gets interesting. During this time, there were some families of the Sadducee party that really controlled the, what's called the high priests and the leaders of the temple. And it was really a group of about seven families, and they passed this down through them, and they'd become super wealthy and powerful. And one of the things that happens that we have to be careful of is when you get too much power and you get too much wealth, you start to want to protect that. And so they started to gather a lot of wealth from the Jewish people, and they started to gather a lot of power from in there. And they made sure that that power just passed between them and their relatives. And one of the things that happened with that is it started to become very corrupt. They had their own soldiers they were in control of. And if they had a problem with you, it was not hard for them to make sure that you were taught that you don't go against the leadership in the temple. You don't go against these high priests it's kind of this cabal that they had. And it was one of the reasons that the corruption of the temple made Jesus interact the way that he did. It's one of the reasons John the Baptist would, call, would come and called them to repentance is because there was this corruption, this power that started occurring here in this area around the, the, the temple and the people that were in control there. So think about it this way. If you came and you had an animal, the people that sold you an animal 
Well, the price was set by the priests. And the people that raised the animal were the people who worked for the high priests and the, the priest, priestly leaders. And the people who were in control of the money changers were the priestly leaders. And they would change your money for a small price, and that was set by the priestly leaders. So it's not hard to make the leap that if, when you're in control of all of these things that happen, it leads to some corruption there. So what started happening is this idea that they would inspect. If they didn't like what you had, they'd send you over to go buy from them, and they'd change the money over there with them. So let me put it to you this way. This is maybe what this looks like. You're a Jewish person in the first century, and maybe you haven't been able to go to Jerusalem, maybe since you were a kid. Maybe that's the last time you were able to go for Passover because you live too far away. But you decide this year you're going to go. After years and years of having the Passover ceremony at your house and saying next year in Jerusalem, finally, this year you get to go to Jerusalem. And maybe what you do is you take your son and you go, I want you to come with me. I want to show you what my father showed me when we actually went to the temple and we got to be there for the Passover. We've been doing it at our home and we've been having this meal and we've been telling the story, but this year we get to go. We've saved up our money and we're ready to travel. We're going to join this huge crowd that goes. And maybe before you go, if you have a flock or you have a few animals, you go through and you pick out the best one. Which one's best? Which one's the one that has no blemish? Maybe you don't have a lot to choose from, but you go through and you pick one out and you go, this is the one we're going to take. And you take that one-year-old lamb and you put it on your shoulders and you carry it with you. And you and your son head off for Jerusalem. And you spend your money and you spend your time and you do whatever you can to get there. Maybe you get to show your son from a long distance. There's the temple. That's where we're headed. It's a place where God is. There's this holy of holies. Did you know the Ark of the Covenant rests in there? And it has the mercy seat on top of it. And this is our reminder. We're going to go and we're going to remember how we used to be slaves because this is the way you would talk. We used to be slaves, but we're not anymore. God redeemed us. God saved us. And so what we're going to go is we're going to go and we're going to celebrate that. And we're going to do this together. And then you show up, and maybe you enter into what's called the court of Gentiles, and it's packed. There's people everywhere, thousands, tens of thousands of people. And everywhere there's these booths, these booths where they're selling animal, and these tables where they're changing out money. And you go in, and you take your animal, and you bring it before the priest, and you go, this is what we brought for the sacrifice. This is what we have. This is our best. And you may have a priest look at that and go, it's not good enough. There's a problem. Your offering is not good enough. You need to go get a different one. And so you think to yourself, okay, I'll see if I can afford a different one, a better one. But before you do that, you need to go change your money. So you go to the tables, and you have your money that's Roman money, and they go, you can't have that. You need to have this, these Jewish coins, the silver shekels. And so as you start to exchange, you realize they're going to take a big chunk of that. They're going to charge you for that. So you spend your money doing that. And then you have your money, and then you go and you try to buy one that you can so that it's good enough, so that your offering is good enough to bring before the Lord. And you need to know that's a hard thing for somebody to tell you your offering for the Lord is not good enough. That's something that goes back throughout the Jewish heritage. You know, it starts at the beginning where you had Cain and Abel, right? They both brought an offering. And Abel's was acceptable to the Lord. And Cain's was not. And you know that story. And so when somebody tells you, your offering that you brought, it's not good enough. That goes right to the heart of who you are in a lot of ways. And if you could, you would find a way 
to make sure that you could buy one that you needed to. But you understand this is all under the control of the leadership at this place. You find yourself at this place where it could be about whether or not you were good enough or whether or not you had enough. If you have enough, then you're able to buy something that makes an offering that's good enough. And then you could go and you could present that before the Lord. Again, there's this invitation to come worship with God, to come experience God, to draw close to him. But somehow, in some ways, it could become about whether or not you were good enough and you had enough. Had enough. So Jesus makes this whip of cords. But you need to know this is not just simple anger that comes out here. As a matter of fact, John writes that later they came to understand and the disciples remembered what he said about that. And it's a scripture from Psalm 69.9. It's the words of King David. And it says, Certainly zeal for your house consumes me, and I endure the insults of those who insult you. So Jesus is angered by what's going on. He sees this place there in the, the court of Gentiles, the place for the outcast. You start seeing people coming in and their desire to come and meet God and to worship with God. And there's this system that's set up that is going to make sure you're good enough and that you have enough and that you're going to be able to do that. And so what happens is more than just anger, it's this zeal. And we need to know about that word zeal. Zeal is also translated in some ways as jealous. Zeal is jealous. As a matter of fact, zealots, when you talk about one of uh, Jesus' disciples was a zealot, it's Simon the zealot, Simon the jealous one. But you need to know that this is not petty jealousy. This is not, hey, pay me attention jealousy. That's not what this is. There's more to it than that. It's about a passionate belonging. That sort of jealousness. It's not in a petty way, but it's a serious sense of belonging. Not ownership, but about belonging. About something being, being set aside for its purpose, and we're jealous about it being used for that purpose. We're zealous about being used for that purpose. So for instance... I'm, I'm married to my wife over here. I'm her husband. I've been set apart for that purpose to be her husband. She has every right to be zealous about me being her husband. As a matter of fact, I kind of like it when she is. Yeah. Right. right? For her to be zealous that I am set apart to be her husband. This is not pettiness. This is about belonging. She doesn't own me, but I belong to her. I've been set apart. And so it makes sense to be able to say, I'm zealous about that. So what you have is Jesus going, my father's house. He claims some divine nature in this. This is my father's house. And he's zealous about his father's house, about how it's been set apart to be used for the purposes of his father. And that's why he gets upset the way that he does. It's okay for us to be zealous about the things that have been set apart in that way. And then he talks about that it consumes me. That means it's eating me up. It's overwhelmed me in every way. What they said was we saw Jesus being zealous in such a way that it ate him up to watch what happened there. It overwhelmed him to such passion that he had to do something. He saw what was happening there and decided this cannot go on. This is not what this is for. This is not the way that my father set his house for. We have forgotten the whole point of this. This was supposed to be a way for you to come and for you to remember we used to be slaves and we're not anymore and we've been set free by the blood of the lamb and you're turning this into something where you can gain power and you can gain wealth and you turn this into a marketplace and we've forgotten what this is about. Consumes me. 
It's funny, if you were a Jewish person, you expected when the Messiah would come that he would be zealous. But you kind of figured that that zealous nature would be pointed towards somebody else. Like, I expect the Messiah to come and be zealous at the Romans, right? The people who are holding us captive. He'll come, and what he'll do is he will take his jealousy, this righteous jealousy, and he will take this passion. And what he'll do is he'll point it towards the people that are holding us hostage, so we expected a zealous Messiah. We didn't expect him to turn that zealousness towards us, towards a system that's set up. Here in the temple, this is not where this belongs. He should be out there doing this. He should be turning the Roman tables over. He should be attacking their palace. He should be going after them. And instead, what we're doing is we're missing this point that John is trying to show us. This is a spiritual concern. And this is one of the things we're going to go to over and over. John is not just talking about physical things. He's telling us, look deeper. There is something deeper than that that's going on here. There's a spiritual nature to this that he wants us to understand. This is not the first time that, that God in the flesh or God as the Heavenly Father, had come and say, I'm mad about what's going on with these rituals. If you look in Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 17, this is what the Lord says to his people. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings, new moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Man, those are hard words. Hard words from our God. And you look at that and you think, so he doesn't want these sacrifices. No, no. This is something deeper than that. This is a spiritual argument he's making. He's not saying, I don't want your sacrifices. He's saying, you're coming and going through the rituals, and you've forgotten what this is about. Do you understand what this is? He even uses so many words here that, that, that uh, sound so much like what Jesus is going through. You're just trampling my courts to go through these rituals and to make these things happen, and you've forgotten what matters here. You've forgotten, in particular, about seeking justice, defending the oppressed, the cause of the fatherless, the case of the widow, you're setting this up in the court of Gentiles, people that desperately need the Lord, and you're trampling all over everything. And you've forgotten that you were once outcasts, that you were slaves. You can see the times when Jesus got most zealous and angry usually had to do with things like this. As a matter of fact, if you look over in Matthew 23, there's this time where Jesus really, again, approached the leadership. And those that were in control of a system that had become corrupt. Matthew 23, verse 4, he's talking about these leaders, these religious leaders. And this is what he says. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders. 
but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, you have somebody going, you're not good enough, you're not enough, you need to do more. And he's going, you're tying these burdens on people. It makes me think so much about what's going on in the courts there. Your offering's not good enough. You're not good enough. You don't have enough. You can't approach God. Realizing that that's not what he's about. And if you look at verse 13, he goes on to say, Woe to you, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So what makes Jesus mad? What makes him zealous? What makes him this, this person that's a, the jealous one? And again, not a pettiness, but about understanding what his father's purpose is. After John's explanation in chapter 1 of who he is, as he's going, you need to know he was there from the beginning. He's the Logos. He is God. He was there in the beginning. And he's come to dwell with us. And he's the stairway and the ladder between God and heaven. And he's come in the flesh. And here he is to be with us. And he tells us again, you're going to see that the angels of heaven ascending and descending on him. In other words, he's the way. He's drawn near to us. He's the one that has come close for you to be able to experience and to draw near to God. And there's nothing that can keep you from the presence of God anymore. And then you see Jesus walk in here and see what's going on in the Gentile courts. It's no wonder he got upset. You've forgotten what this is about. You've forgotten the story of how you were set free when you were slaves. And through the blood of the lamb, you were set free. And you were allowed to come. And you were allowed to engage with God. And you saw him. And you saw his glory. And he tabernacled there with us as we traveled to the promised land. You think about how Jesus has come now. And he said, this is what I've come for, is to make this connection. People get to draw near to God now. We were once people who were outcasts. We were people who had somebody in power, a Pharaoh, who kept us from going and worshiping our God and from drawing near to him. And now we're becoming that. And we've done that. And that's not what this is about. And that's not who we are. I am now the dwelling place of God. Jesus has come in the flesh. Don't forget. Don't forget who we are. Don't forget what we're doing. Don't let anybody stop you from being able to come to the Lord. Now, what does this mean for us? This is a great reminder to what we exist for. This is a great reminder of who we are. The good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel that John's writing for us and for us to be able to see is to make sure that we understand the good news is that anybody gets to come into the presence of God. You get to come. This is the same Jesus who's going to go, you come to me if you're weary, if you're tired, if you're heavy laden, no matter what's going on, you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to have enough. All you got to do is you got to come. Your offering is you. And let me tell you, we remember those of us that belong to Christ. We remember when I came, I wasn't anything but broken, a mess. I had no offering that was without blemish. I had nothing that you would look at and go, that's perfect. All I had was a heart that was filled with sin. I was lost. I didn't know how I was ever going to belong. I tried to save myself through good works and trying to be religious enough and understanding that none of that is what was needed to encounter God. This is who we are. And we are people now that make sure we gather others 
We don't hold anybody at arm's length and go, your offering's not enough. That's why I love BSF. You have all these people that come in and they go, well, I'm from this church and I'm from this church and I do things a little different. We're not going to go, well, you're not doing it right. Your offering's not good. Your worship isn't good. We're not going to do that. Jesus has a problem with that. We're going to go, you come in here. You find Christ. You dig through the word. You claim Jesus is Lord. You make your offering of who you are to Christ. That's who we are. We get to welcome people in that. We want you to know if you don't yet belong to Christ, if you haven't made that decision, you need to know there is nothing holding you back. There is nothing you have to have. There is nothing you have to be good enough. You are welcome to come because it's not how good your sacrifice is. Now it's how good his sacrifice was. He did this. It's the blood of the lamb that he did for you. I'm so excited. We're going to get to experience that today. Actually, we have somebody here with us today, Sarah Bradshaw, who's been attending here for the last few months. And she's come and she said, hey, I want to give my life to Christ and I want to become a follower of Jesus. So we get to experience that and we get to remember why we're here and what this is about. This story of ours that you're going to see happen today is going to be a time where we get to remember we were once enslaved by sin. We were held captive by death. And then the Lord came and met us, and through that we've become redeemed people. We're going to spend a little time in a couple of songs, and we're going to pray. So if you would, stand up. And here's why we're doing this. We, we get this opportunity now. If you need to spend some time in prayer where you are, if you want to pray with somebody, if you're just hurting today and you need to pray, please do that. If you want to pray with some elders that are around and some other folks, please do that. But more than that, what we want to do is remember that as followers of Christ, we don't ever want to fall into this trap where we've built this system that keeps people away from the presence of God. Instead, what we want to do is be those people who go, we were outcasts and we came to Christ and this is what he's done for us and this is what he can do for you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for uh, Christ and his mercy. We thank you that he was the temple and he was willing to let himself be destroyed and then rebuilt in three days, resurrected, so that we could see that he has this new body and that there's this spiritual difference. And now we have that. And we have eternal life with you. And so, Lord, we ask, one, that you would forgive us for the times where maybe we held people at arm's length. For the times that maybe we got too focused on our ritual and we got too focused on how and we forgot why and we forgot what. Lord, let us never get so... Uh, obsessed with how we do things that we forget that we are people who have been redeemed. We are people that have been saved by the blood of Christ. And because of that, we welcome people in, all those. And if there are those here today, Lord, um, who need you, we ask that you would pierce their hearts with how much they are loved by you. Let nobody be kept aside because they feel like that they're not good enough or they don't have enough, but instead to realize you have done enough for all of us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.